Good morning, church. It's great to be with you, um, for us to be together. Um, uh, as I speak, uh, the reaction to the election results um, was in some ways predictable, um, meaning, to be clear, uh, it was one of utter euphoria or just massive relief for part of the country and total devastation for the other. Um, how are you feeling today? How are you feeling today? Whether you're part of our church listening in or those of you that were invited by our church family. I said last week that electing a wise, just, righteous leader who will enact wise, just policies powerfully shapes the world that we live in. So that's why we need to engage the full spectrum of the political process, including voting. It's very, very important. But an election result shouldn't be devastating or soul-crushing to someone who has put their hope and trust in the name of the Lord our God. Amen? And if your guy won, um, I want to remind us that we elected a president, not a savior or sovereign, who is going to all of a sudden solve all of our societal ills. So my question to you is this, are you banking on the new president or the new administration to do for you what only God can do? Psalm 146.3 says, Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings. There is no help for you there. Where you place your hope matters, Christian. So while you're free to give your candidate your new president, your support, don't give him your heart. Um, I shared with some folks this morning that if I can kind of sum up this election season, a political candidate won, but I feel like the country lost. What do I mean? This isn't news to anybody. We knew we lived in a divided country, but this election has just revealed that our country is getting even more divided. The blue states got bluer, as they say, and the red states got redder. People are living in echo chambers where their beliefs, worldviews only get affirmed and validated. So we demonize each other. We assume the worst of one another. We don't talk to each other. And the sad part is that the church of Jesus Christ is not prophetically speaking out against this toxic culture. No, we mirror this toxic culture. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is grieved. We have to do better. We, the church, have to do better. Can I get an amen? Man, I, 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 I realize I can't wait every four years to preach on politics and Christian engagement. Like, I got to do this more regularly. Because more than ever, I feel like we need a Christian vision of politics. And this might be one of the most important sermons I'll preach. As I mentioned uh, last week, the church, we in America have an incredibly weak and uninformed theology of politics. So the posture of Christians is either complete disengagement from politics, you know, because all we need to do is preach the gospel and save souls, or, 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 followers of Jesus putting all their hopes and trust in candidates and parties and platforms to bring about change. And neither is the way of Jesus. Jesus today lays out for us how to engage politically as a follower of Jesus. And again, this might be one of the most important sermons I think I'll preach. If you're just joining us and you missed last week, please go and listen to last week's sermon. And what we're talking about is not partisanship. Partisanship is about parties and candidates and platforms and campaigns. No, we're talking about politics, which literally is the art of being a citizen in the city where we live. And so Christian engagement with politics is very much 
at the, uh, very much critical to a follower of Jesus. So that's what we're talking about. And so today is sort of part two of the Christian engagement with politics. And I'm calling it uh, a Christian vision of politics, part two. Uh, 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 so a couple things real quick. I, I need to give credit where credit is due. This sermon, and frankly, my whole understanding of the theology of politics has been heavily influenced by three people. One is Walter Brueggemann. Uh, this book, Out of Babylon, was foundational for me, and I need uh, and I need to acknowledge that. Secondly, pastorally, there's a pastor named Tim Keller who's been instrumental in terms of helping me understand this as a pastor. And then third is Dr. Martin Luther King who in practice showed how Christians had engaged politics. So the text for today is Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. So turn your Bibles there. Mark chapter 12. Now, now this, this is found in all four Gospels, and the context is, is, is right before the text we're going to see, Jesus has just cleansed the temple, and that's important, and you'll see. Okay? Jesus just cleansed the temple. So Mark chapter 12, verse 13, we pick up the story. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You're not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now the, the tax that they're referring to was a head tax which was levied on subjected people, not to the Romans. It was an annual tax of one denarius, which is not a lot of money. It's essentially one day's wage, but it symbolized the privilege of being subjects of Caesar. Imagine that. It was the hot political topic of the day, this head tax. Why? Here's the political landscape of Palestine at this time. So the, the, the Romans, of course, rule the land of Palestine, and Jews are essentially captives in their own country. And there are three political responses, if you will, to this Roman rule, oppressive, unjust Roman rule. One group went along with this and were able to profit considerably. They included Herodians, who the Romans often put in charge to govern on their behalf. And of course, you have the tax collectors, who are deemed national traitors. For working for the Roman government. Um, then the, another group of people and the way they responded to was is they just withdrew. They just withdrew from all engagement with culture, all engagement, didn't pay taxes. And this was, uh, the, a group of this was called the Essenes. The Essenes. You hear of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are these ancient documents found way out in the desert that many archaeologists believe were written by who? The Essenes. And then there was a third group. And this third group of Jews resisted this. And they included Pharisees who resisted out of religious or moral convictions. And then also the zealots who resisted out of national pride. Who didn't mind, by the way, using uh, military uh, means if necessary. They believed that God alone was Israel's king and that it was treason. Treason for, God, for God's people to recognize any Gentile ruler by paying him tribute in the form of taxes. So these three groups. Now, I, just a sidebar. Uh, among Jesus' disciples, you remember, was Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Think about that. These two people came from groups where they could not have had more hatred for one another. It would have made our political divide today, frankly, look tame. And yet, they were family. And yet, they belonged to the same community. Because what held them together was the fact that they worshipped Jesus as Lord. Here's a question I need you to consider. Do you feel more fundamentally aligned with the non-Christian who aligns with your political party and views than with the Christian who votes differently from you? 
I want you to think about that for a second this morning. Do you feel more fundamentally aligned with the non-Christian who aligns with your political party than with the Christian who votes differently from you? Christians, we share the most vital, deep-seated, identity-forming reality in common with other Christ followers. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, brought into one new body, and indwelt by the same Spirit. And this brotherhood and this sisterhood stands regardless of our politics. Indeed, it exists even across vastly different forms of government. Listen, I have a tighter bond of fellowship with the Christian who is in communist China than I do with somebody who's part of my own family who doesn't know Jesus. A deeply divided nation needs to see the reconciling power of the gospel that is able to break down dividing walls of hostility and division now more than ever. What binds us together, church, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, or common politics, or common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. What binds us together is that we've all bowed our knees to Jesus Christ as Lord. Our deepest allegiance is not to a candidate or to a party, but to Jesus Christ. Our politics is not shaped by the donkey or the elephant, but by the lamb. More important than left or the right is being centered on Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? Now, now back to the story. Why is Jesus being asked this question, and why now? Well, well they're just, these guys are trying to smoke Jesus out. What do I mean? Well, when it was first instituted, said tax, there was an armed revolt, an attempted political coup, if you will, led by a man named Judas. Now, what did Judas do? Three things. First, his message for this, uh, this armed revolt was, was we're going to let God be king, not Caesar. We're going to usher in the kingdom of God. Now, remember, to the Jews, the kingdom of God was an inner peace, Right? Remember that to the Jews, the kingdom of God was what? They're waiting for the Messiah, a Messiah in the order of a military political figure who's going to overthrow the Roman government and establish God's rule. The second thing Judas did was with an armed militia, he went and cleansed the temple of all Gentiles and foreigners. And third thing that Judas did was he called on all God-fearing Jews to refuse to pay the head tax. What happened to him? Well, we find actually what happened to him in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. But he was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Now, back to Mark 12, it's been 25 years. So realize what's happening. Are you tracking with me? First, Jesus built this entire teaching around what? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, right? Jesus in the message was as political as it was spiritual. Although the, the, the people were very misguided as to who and how the kingdom of God was going to come about, they all believed that it was going to deal with real poverty, real injustice, real oppression, real suffering, and real hunger. Jesus, kingdom of God. Second, Jesus is what? Just cleansed the temple. And there's one thing left for this political revolution, right? There's one thing left for this political revolution, which is what? The refusal to pay the head tax. So they come to Jesus and they're saying, hey, what do you think of the tax, Jesus? You've cleansed the temple. You're constantly talking about the kingdom of God. Now tell us what you think of the head tax. The question they're asking is, are you leading a political revolution? Are you leading a political revolution? Uh, 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 they're not just trying to get Jesus in trouble, because here's what's at stake. Here's what's at stake. On the one hand, Jesus says, don't pay the tax. He's calling for an armed revolt. And just like Judas, he'll be crushed by the authorities. Can't say that. 
On the other hand, if Jesus says, sure, of course, do pay the head tax, he risks losing all credibility with people who followed him because they'll think he's a sellout. Yes, pay the taxes was essentially equivalent to saying, be a good citizen and submit to this tyrant. See the dilemma. So what happens? Verse 15. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? Image in Greek literally is the word icon, right? Icon. Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Well, Caesar's, they replied. And they were right. The, the, the image was that of Tiberius Caesar. Uh, these coins are still in the museum, so you can go check it out. Okay? And the inscription said, Tiberius Caesar, son of God Augustus, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. In other words, Jesus holds up a coin that literally says, King, son of God, high priest. A claim to absolute allegiance. And what does Jesus say? Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Uh, give to Caesar what is literally the coin was his. All the coins at this time were literally minted out of Caesar's wealth. It's his money. So Jesus is saying, it's his money. Go ahead and give it to him. Give to Caesar what has his image on it, but give to God what has God's image on it. And what has God's image on it? You. Me. It's one of those mic drop moments, you know what I'm saying? And see how they responded. The story ends by saying what? They were amazed at him. Three implications. And don't ask me why I always have three points, okay? But three implications today. And let me just say, especially in light of the election results, I feel like today I need to speak to those of you particularly who might be tempted to look at the new administration and saying, now everything will be okay. I want to be sober in terms of reminding us that we are citizens of another kingdom that absolutely impacts how we live as citizens here. First point, be engaged politically, but don't put your hopes in politics. Be engaged politically, but don't put your hopes in politics. In saying, to, uh, in saying give to Caesar what is Caesar, Jesus beautifully and with incredible nuance spoke to both people who wanted nothing to do with political engagement, the Essenes, and those who looked at political powers as being ultimate, the zealots. On one hand, Jesus says to the Essenes, pay your taxes. Don't withdraw. Don't disengage from cultures. As citizens of another kingdom, look and operate like citizens of the coming kingdom here and now. Engage, bring renewal to every arena of life, arts, business, education, agriculture, and even politics. But Jesus was also addressing the zealots who were calling for an armed revolt or a political revolution to solve all societal ills. And Jesus says, do not put your hope in a political party or a platform or candidate, that is not the way you usher in the kingdom of God. Don't be seduced into political powers being ultimate. It's an inadequate vehicle for the enormous changes that I'm going to bring into the world. Listen, 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 church. Every four years, we elect somebody and we wait and we hope that things will fundamentally change. Do they? It feels like all we're doing is just rearranging the deck furniture on a sinking Titanic. Now listen, listen. Good administrations led by great presidents absolutely result in some good things. 
That's why it is important to engage and be involved. Having said that, no president, no party will bring the kind of justice movement that will bring about fundamental change. Political solutions are not enough. They are insufficient. Why is that? Let me break this down so that the ideology of the left believes that big government and social reform will solve societal ills. The right believes that big businesses and economic growth will. The left expects a citizen to be held accountable for the use of their wealth, but autonomous in all other areas like sexual morality. The right expects a citizen to be legally accountable in areas of personal morality, but totally autonomous in their use of wealth. But neither party understands that the root issue of all of our social problems is sin. Sin, which has ruined all of us, both individually and corporately, personally and systematically. Causes of our worsening social problems are far more complex than the right or the left understands. But the church... But the church can address the root issues of our social problems. Amen? But the church, kingdom people, kingdom people of Jesus Christ, the church of Christ, and millions of many churches throughout the country, throughout the world, can minister to the whole persons. The gospel understands that sin has ruined us both individually and socially, personally and structurally. And hello, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to redeem and to heal us individually and socially, personally and structurally. Amen? The gospel can transform a nation as well as a neighborhood, as well as a broken heart. The gospel. Be engaged politically, but do not put your hopes in politics. Secondly, be engaged politically by resisting unjust and oppressive systems. Be engaged politically by resisting unjust and oppressive systems. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, what is his image on it. It's his money, give it to him. But give to God what has his image on it, which is what? You. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, there is a higher authority than Caesar. And that's God. You have no idea how revolutionary that was. I'll talk about that in a little bit. Jesus is saying your ultimate allegiance is not to a king, an earthly king of an earthly kingdom. Your ultimate allegiance is to a heavenly king of a heavenly kingdom. So you may give Caesar some of what he wants, which is his money, but you cannot give Caesar ultimately what he wants, that is allegiance. So when he demands ultimate allegiance, Jesus says what? Resist it. Resist it. Now, there's a wordplay here that doesn't quite come out in English. The original question to Jesus in verse 15 was, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And the word pay in Greek is literally the word dunai, which means to give, give, as, a, as, a, as in a gift, to give as a gift. But in his answer, Jesus actually changes the original word from dunai to give, and he says, apadote Caesar. And the word apadote literally means to pay back. Pay back Caesar what he deserves. Well, what does a tyrant like Caesar deserve? He deserves his money. It's his. But doesn't he deserve some resistance as well? See, in a culture and time, think about this. When a king or ruler had divine authority, 
Uh, they literally said, we are ruling on behalf of the gods, so we can't be questioned. Jesus comes along and says this radical, just, I, I mean, just radical statement, which was, there is a higher authority than Caesar, and it's God. So, when a ruler or a government demands ultimate allegiance, when a ruler or a government perpetuates systems of injustice and oppressions that mar the image of God in you and mar the image of God in others, when a ruler or a government forces you to disobey God, then what? Resist it. Don't just accept an unjust, oppressive system. Resist it. You ultimately answer to a higher authority, and that is God. And Jesus was laying the groundwork for a rich, storied history of civil disobedience as a form of political engagement. Whether it's Daniel, do you remember disobeying the king's orders not to pray? Or his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to bow down to the statue of the king. Or the early Christians who gladly were thrown to the lions or used as, as human torches because they did not disown the name of Jesus. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer standing up to Hitler during Nazi Germany. Or the Hungarian freedom fighters. We have a rich history of followers of Jesus who fought against systems of injustice and oppression. Of course, modern example is who? Is Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King reminded us that we have a moral responsibility to hold governing authorities and systems and structures accountable. With the Bible in one hand and constitution in the other, he said the church is the conscience of the state, the guide, the critic of the state. And he was arrested 30 times between 1955 and 1965 for leading marches and demonstrations that were deemed unlawful. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm going to go in here, and I'm going I'm to rattle some of you. But I need to say the following. Listen, in the last seven, eight months, and in light of the racial injustice in our country, we've seen literally hundreds of thousands of people protesting and marching the unjust killings of our black brothers and sisters. But at the same time, a number of high-profile Christian leaders. A number of high-profile Christian leaders came out and criticized the public protests for, check this out, breaking the law or being disruptive in order to bring attention to racial justice, racial, racial injustice. And almost mirroring and reflecting our government leaders, they call for law and order. Listen, let me, to be clear, to be clear, I don't want to get any emails, so to be clear, I absolutely and wholeheartedly condemn people who've used peaceful protests and marches for evil to cause harm and destruction to people, to businesses, and to communities. I know of no serious follower of Jesus who thinks that's okay. But let's not get it twisted. Please don't use examples, these examples, to tell people to stop protesting and to follow law and order. You know, you know what really saddens me in some ways? It's sobering. Dr. King said something 50 years ago that is maybe more relevant today than it was then. He said that the greatest obstacle to the advancement of black people wasn't the Ku Klux Klan, but the white moderates. White pastors who are more concerned with tranquility and the status quo than they were about justice and community. People who said, listen, 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 Martin, I, 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 I agree with you in the goals that you seek, but I cannot agree with you with the methods of direct action. I mean, think about our times. And Dr. King challenged them and said what? Yes, listen, we have a moral and legal responsibility to obey just laws. But, 
We have a moral responsibility to speak up and resist when we see injustice, when we see unjust laws that mar the image of God in his people. And furthermore, he said, ask, ask yourself, what are the conditions that are causing these individuals to feel that they have no other alternative than to engage in protest to get attention? Riot is the language of the, what? Unheard. So, Christian, I need to ask you, are you more concerned about tranquility and status quo and law and order than about justice and humanity? Do you ever ask, what are the conditions that are causing people to feel that they have no other alternative than to engage in protest to get attention? Who will you stand with? Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. The kind of justice movement that can change the fabric of our society will not happen until those of us who are not affected stand in solidarity with those who are and say, enough is enough. Enough is enough. Be engaged politically by resisting unjust oppressive systems and then lastly be engaged politically anchored and shaped by an utterly different kind of kingdom be engaged politically anchored and shaped by an utterly different kind of kingdom and this is the most important point for this morning sermon i need to remind all of us that justice apart from jesus is lifeless can i get an amen Justice apart from Jesus is lifeless. We don't worship justice. We worship a just God. The only battering ram that can storm the gates of hell is not the cry of justice. It's the name of Jesus. Please don't prioritize the cause of Christ before the person of Christ. Jesus is not a cause. He is a person Focusing on his cause doesn't equate to focusing on or following him. Let your worship of him lead you to live justly. Having said that, listen, look at this. Two people claiming to be king, Tiberius and Jesus. Two people. Both say, I am king. I am the son of God. But will you look at how utterly different they are? Look at how really different they are. One guy literally has all the coins in the world. All the coins in the world. The other king doesn't even have a quarter to his name. He has to ask somebody, give me a coin. Give me a coin. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has what? No place to lay his head. What is Jesus saying? Jesus isn't saying, hey, Elect me because I'm going to be a better Caesar. No, 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 no. Jesus is bringing about an utterly different kingdom as an utterly different king. Jesus is bringing about an utterly different kind of kingdom as an utterly different kind of king. Now, why is that so critical today? Michelle Alexander, I read her quote last week. I'm going to quote it again. This woman who's worked for the injustice, against injustice, mass incarceration. Her words are so profound to me, so profound to me. It's, it's prophetic. Listen to what she says. Solving the crisis we face isn't a matter of having the right facts, graphs, policy analysis, or funding. I no longer believe we can just win justice by filing lawsuits, flexing our political muscles, or boasting turnout. Yes, we absolutely must do that work, but none of it, not even working for some form of political revolution, will ever be enough on its own. Without a moral and spiritual awakening, we will remain forever trapped 
in political gains fueled by fear, greed, and hunger for power. When I came across this quote, I literally thought Luke 6. She, she, she must have meditated on Luke 6. Because in Luke 6, Jesus tells us why no form of political revolution will ever be enough on its own. In Luke 6, Jesus is contrasting the fundamental difference between the, between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And Jesus lays out four values, the dividing line between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And here are the four values of the kingdoms of this world. Power, success, comfort, recognition. Power, success, comfort, and recognition. And Jesus tells us, let me tell you the difference between the kingdoms of this world, driven by those four values, and the kingdom of God. One, in the kingdoms of this world, you idolize those values. You live for them. And you're devastated when you don't have them. <laughs> Secondly, your life decisions are made based on getting them. Your life decision that makes them begin. People don't move to Chicago because they're going, I want to work for the common good. I want to be able to love my neighbor as myself. No! People come to Chicago they're like, I want to increase recognition. I want to increase my power. I want to increase success. I want to increase comfort. Kingdoms of this world. And third, in the kingdom of this world, we despise people without them. Now look at me. Look at me. Every political revolution in the history of the world is about one party saying, we want the power, we want the recognition, we want the success. We've been excluded, we've been marginalized. But what happens when they get into power? What happens when they get into power? They turn right around and what? Exclude and marginalize those who disagree with them. So nothing ever changes. It's just rearranging the furniture. So, as Michelle Alexander so prophetically says, we are trapped in a political game fueled by fear, greed, and hunger for power. But look at how utterly different King Jesus is. Look at how utterly different King Jesus is. How does he bring about his kingdom? Election? Political coup? Military coup? No! He brings about his kingdom by turning the world's value system on its head. Hello! This king gives away his wealth to make others rich. This king has all the powers in the universe, but he leverages it on behalf of the weak, the marginalized, and the powerless. Realize that every other politician cannot do a single darn thing unless they get power, unless they get elected. Not this king. Now this is a king the, whose climax of his kingship and career was not when he got elected, but when he got what? Executed. And he is building a kingdom that isn't built on crushing people, but loving people. He has established a kingdom that isn't built on oppressing people, but setting the oppressed free. He's building a kingdom that you enter by faith, by grace, and not by works or pedigree or power or wealth or who you know, which means anybody's welcome. Is this good news? Anybody's welcome. Pimps, prostitutes, tax collectors, the moral failures, the poor, the uneducated, the marginalized, the forgotten, the neglected. And yes, especially those of you who have made a mess of yourself. Jesus says, you're welcome. Come on. This is for you. And how is he bringing about this revolution? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. How is this King Jesus bringing about his revolution? Anybody who follows this king has been transferred out of the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of God. An utterly different kind of kingdom, which means that in the kingdom of God, you no longer live, hello, for the values of the world's kingdom. 
power, comfort, success, and recognition. In the kingdom of God, you don't need them, you don't make decisions based on them, and you don't despise people without them. The gospel of the kingdom calls us to what? Deny ourselves, take up the cross, and embrace kingdom values, which flips the world's value on its head. The kingdom values are self-denial, humble servanthood, radical sacrifice, and costly love. <sighs> Think about this. Look at church history. How did the early Christians change the social order? How did the early Christians, think about this, change their world with zero political power? <laughs> zero political influence. Zero. It was the opposite. The early church was a band of marginalized and oppressed group of nobodies living under the oppressive rule of a tyrant king. So how do they change their world? This is how. Although they were citizens of an earthly city, the city of man, they ultimately found their identity as citizens of a heavenly city, the city of God. Although they belonged to an earthly nation, they were citizens of another kingdom where Caesar isn't Lord. No, no, no. Jesus Christ is Lord. And having been freed from the enslaving idols of power, recognition, status, and wealth, they embraced radical kingdom values, kingdom values, kingdom values of self-denial, humble servanthood, radical sacrifice, and costly love. And they looked at the sick, the poor, the least, the marginalized, and they went out into the world and they poured out their lives in radical, costly, selfless service. That is how they brought about a revolution. Can you imagine? Carl, imagine. Imagine what's possible if millions of kingdom people lived where it will do the most good, not just where it's most comfortable. Imagine what's possible if millions of kingdom people didn't pursue careers based on what will give you status, but pursued careers that will do the most good. Imagine what's possible if millions of kingdom people didn't define success in terms of what benefits you, but what benefits others. Imagine what's possible if millions of kingdom people didn't hoard wealth to support a lifestyle that makes you feel significant, but were radically generous. Imagine what's possible if millions of kingdom people leverage whatever power you have, whatever influence you have, not to advance your agenda, but in humble service to the least of these. You know what would happen? A revolution the world has not ever seen. A revolution no political candidate, no political party, no political platform will do. Is this good news? Yes, it is. Let me end with this. Let me end with this. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes, Cece, thank you, Lord Jesus. I'm going to read a, a, a bit of a sermon, sermon excerpt. It was preached by a pastor evangelist named Tom Skinner, who has since passed. He preached a sermon in 1970 at Urbana, Missions Conference, Urbana. And the sermon title was Racism and World Evangelism. Okay? And Pastor Skinner beautifully, beautifully brings us back to the end of Jesus' life. Do you remember the end of Jesus' life? Okay, Jesus is standing there with Pilate, and there's one other person, do you remember? Barabbas, Barabbas, okay? So Pilate is standing there with Jesus and Barabbas, okay? And he essentially says to the crowd, hey, it's festivity time. <laughs> I love you Jewish people, right? I even have friends that are Jewish. I'm going to go ahead and release one of these folks, okay? Who do you want? Who do you want? And the crowd chanted what? Barabbas! Barabbas. Here's what Pastor Skinner says. Barabbas was a revolutionary. A little revolutionary. He was a freedom fighter. A man of violence. Barabbas is the guy burning the system down. He's killing people. Well, why didn't the leaders incite the crowd to get rid of Barabbas? Here's why. You can always stop 
Barabbas' kind of revolution. See, the most that Barabbas will do is he'll go out, round up another guerrillas. You can always stop him by rolling your tanks into his neighborhood, bring out the National Guard, finding out where he's keeping his ammunition, raiding his apartment without a search warrant, and shooting him while he's asleep. But how do you stop Jesus? When they nailed him to a cross, they didn't realize that they were putting up on that cross the sinful nature of all humanity. Jesus Christ nailed to the cross was more than just a political radical. He was God's answer to the human dilemma. And on that cross, Christ was bearing my sins on that body. And he was proclaiming my liberation on that cross. He shed his blood to cleanse me from all my sin and set me free. And then I love this. I wish I preached this sermon. He says, and then they buried him and rolled a stone over the grave and they wiped their hands and said, where there's, well, there's one social radical that will never disturb us again. But three days later, <laughs> Jesus Christ pulled off what might be the biggest and greatest political coup of all time. Because he got up out of that grave when he rose from the dead, the Bible now calls him the second man, the new man, leader of a new creation, a Christ who has come to overthrow the existing order and establish a new order that will not be built on man. Keep in mind, my friends, with all your militancy and radicalism, that all the systems of men are doomed to destruction. All the systems of men will crumble, and finally, only God's kingdom and his righteousness will prevail. You will never be truly radical until you become part of that new order. Then you can go out into a world that is enslaved, a world filled with hunger, poverty, and racism, all the works of the devil, and you can proclaim real liberation to the captives. You can preach sight to the blind. You can set at liberty they that are bruised. You can go into the world and tell all that are bound mentally, spiritually, and physically, your liberator has come. And all the people of God said, Amen. 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 Church, God sits on the throne this morning. He is still sovereign over all things, including all the governments of the world. So this morning, as we close, I'm going to lead us in this short time of prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, I urge then first of all that petitions, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those in authority, that, they, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Scripture absolutely tells us not only is God sovereign over rulers and leaders and governments, but it also reminds us to pray for them. Pray for them. And we have a new administration and a new president. Whether you voted for him or not, Scripture says, I need you to pray. So this morning is a perfect time, post-election, to pray. Here's the three requests. I'm just going to put them all up at the same time. You'll see it on your screen. And I'll go ahead and have us, have us pray for a couple minutes and then I'll close for us. First is pray that the president will govern with justice and care about issues affecting the most vulnerable and work to address them. Also pray that the president will surround himself with godly advisors and godly leaders. Proverbs 11, 14, where there's no guidance, people fall, but in abundance of counselors, there's safety. So we can pray that God would do that. Third, pray for a spiritual and moral awakening in this country. And then one prayer for the church. I would be remiss if we didn't remember that we the church, we the church have a role. Pray that the church will display the reconciling power of the cross in her oneness and unity. So let me give you a couple minutes to pray. Jesus. Jesus. 
Jesus. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus. Let's pray together, church. Jesus, we declare this morning that you alone are Savior, Sovereign, King, Lord. We anchor our peace and our hope, our hearts, on you. You rule, you reign, your kingdom is still advancing as planned. Father, you call us to pray for all people, kings, and those in authority. It's really hard to lapse into criticism if we linger in intercession for them. So we pray for our president, future presidents, and all those in authority. In the coming hours and months, may we pray just as earnestly and faithfully for whoever, God, you choose to raise up and sit down. And we pray for your bride, the church. The world will know that we belong to Jesus by the way we love each other, not the way we voted. The world will know that we love each other by the way we love each other, not the way we voted. Help us, heal us, fill us with your glory and grace humility and kindness renew our first love for you jesus and deepen our trust in you jesus we long for shalom we long for shalom of your present and coming kingdom for our country and the world but most of all give us a greater passion for godliness and holiness life centered on your glory your grace your will and your reign what we need more than political solutions is for you our king to pour out the holy spirit on us father we need a revival may we not settle for lives of personal peace and personal affluence the gospel frees us to live for you and for our neighbors and not ourselves. We pray all of this in the powerful and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. <laughs>